Welcome to Park City Church. You're listening to our weekly message, where we hope you'll be inspired and encouraged to know and follow Jesus and welcome and serve others. Thank you for tuning in. I'm going to turn to 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13. All right. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with, the, with these words. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day does surprise you like a thief, for you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. Uh, I spent a lot of time uh, at the hospital the last few weeks and a uh, couple of weeks. And um, on one occasion, early one morning, I was taking breakfast to whoever's in the waiting room, Chick-fil-A, and uh, my hands were full, and we were at KU, and they had this bank of like six elevators in, this, in the center of the lobby, and I went in, and Aaron happened to have come down to grab a cup of coffee, and he was making his way back up. Uh, so we hopped on the elevator together, and it was full of people, right? Patients, wheelchairs, uh, health care professionals, guests like myself. I went into the elevator, and uh, we were one of the last ones on. I stepped in, and I turned and leaned against the wall. And by some design flaw, the buttons to the elevator are on the side wall, and not the front wall, right? And I lit every button <laughs> right? I did. I lit every button up. And uh, Aaron noticed, and then slowly everyone in the elevator noticed. And because I'm awkward, right, I drew attention to it. And we went up to the first floor, and the doors opened. No one got on or off. The doors closed. And in my anxiety, I was like pushing the door closed button. Close, 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 close. Right? Not with my hands, because I don't touch elevator buttons in public. But uh, you know, close, close. No, I'm just kidding. Um, and I don't know why, but the doors closed, and we went back down to the lobby together. They opened again, 
No one got on or off, and they closed. And then we continued on our journey. Thankfully, I got off on the second floor, and everyone else had to stay and finish the, <laughs> the ride. I, uh, I want to suggest to you this morning that the reading we heard from Thessalonians, this passage, has had a similar effect on the, the Christian imagination around death and resurrection and Jesus' return. I mean, it's full of just incredible imagery, right? It's, it's, it's thick with images, trumpets and clouds and ascending and descending and thievery, all of these images. And, and uh, you're up, you're down. The question, well, who's on and who's off and when and which floor does everybody get off on and when? The Christian imagination around this passage about what it will mean when Jesus returns and what it will look like, I, I feel like has been equally as confusing and, and I think specifically for the, the people to whom Paul was writing, let's just try to put ourselves in their shoes, right? They, uh, historically, they were closer to the resurrection than we are. It was you know, nearer to them. Um, and, and then also some scholars suggest that uh, Paul hadn't had adequate time to sort of teach about all of these things, right? And he was on these missionary journeys. He's moving and, and being sort of moved along out of places sometimes before he was ready to go. So he hadn't been able to teach perhaps as adequately as he would have liked around these things. So their, their proximate nearness to Jesus' resurrection and their anticipation of his very soon return and Paul's inability to sort of perhaps explain things as robustly as he would have liked left them with questions because their Christian brothers and sisters were dying. And they're left with the feeling, the question, well, what do we do about them? I thought resurrection meant life. I thought Jesus was coming back. Well, what if he comes back now? And my Christian brothers and sisters, remember, Christian is new, right? The movement of Jesus is new. What, what about them? What do we do with, with death? And I hope we'll see this morning that, that the, the conversation around these issues for Paul are in the same line as every previous conversation we've considered out of the book of Thessalonians. This letter to Christians who are trying to figure out and understand what it means to live their faith in the context of the world they're in. A context that is sometimes hostile, that is sometimes indifferent, a context that's familiar to them, that is their sort of default position. It's where they would have come from. Many of them, what does their Christian faith look like in that space? Last week, we saw some practical examples. It had implications for human sexuality. It had implications for work and how we live and work in the world and with and for and in front of others. And this week, the same thing is true. It has implications for death and grief. Where all of these spaces are changed because of Jesus. And now as Christians, people following Jesus, like them, you and I wrestle with, well, how do we relate to these things? It's pretty clear and probably not surprising that the resurrection of Jesus in this passage, as Paul expresses, the resurrection of Jesus changes our experience of these things. In, in this passage, there's two paragraphs, and the, they're, they're, they're sort of different themes or topics, but they're held together by this central truth that the resurrection, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and his re return change our experience of death in the first paragraph, but also of life. They change uh, his, it, 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 it anchors each paragraph. In verse 14 of, of chapter 4, the first paragraph Jet read for us, uh, uh, very quickly Paul establishes, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again. 
It becomes a kind of shorthand for the gospel, the story of Jesus, his life, death, resurrection, and now his ascension and his return in this shorthand, the death and resurrection of Jesus changes our relationship and our experience of death. But then the second paragraph, he calls it to mind again in chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. He says, through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us. And once again, in a bit of shorthand, he pulls us into the story, the work of Jesus, his life, death, his resurrection. And so this morning, we're going to kind of hold each paragraph, um, hear them together, but we'll kind of move through each one. And, and I think it will help us to think about uh, how we as Christians relate to death and life because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And the first observation I want to make, the first paragraph, is that Jesus' resurrection, his return, it changes our relationship to death because now we grieve with hope. We grieve with hope. I, I kind of want to do that like call and response thing. Does everybody say with hope? With yeah, hope. right? We grieve, right? He doesn't dismiss the genuineness of grief. Many of you have been touched and, and affected by the um, uh, experience of grief in this world. Paul doesn't dismiss it. He doesn't say, we're Christians, we don't grieve. He says, we don't grieve without hope. We grieve genuinely, but not hopelessly because of the resurrection of Jesus. Listen to what he says, verse 13. We don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about these things, about those who are asleep. So your experience of death uh, in your community, we don't want you to be misinformed. You don't grieve as others, as others do who have no hope. In the context of the Thessalonians, sort of pagan rituals of, of grief that were characterized by sort of a wild and hopeless mourning, Paul says, because of Jesus, your approach, your experience of those places is different. We've already acknowledged that, that this passage is full of some just incredible imagery. Uh, I mean, it's a pretty wild ride, right? It's a pretty wild ride. People caught up in the air and coming in the clouds and all of this in, incredible uh, imagery. It's like the, you know, Will Ferrell and Elf just hitting all the buttons on the elevator or me at the hospital, right? They're just like... There's just a lot of up and down and movement here, and, and we're left with a question, like, where do we get off? Like, what is the, uh, well, how does this work? We declare to you, he says, right, that those who have died before you, I know you're worried. How does the resurrection relate to them? And so he's, he's explaining all of this to them. And, and we could spend a lot of time, I think, on maybe parsing the particulars. We won't do all of them, but I'll just make a couple of general observations, and you can take them or leave them, as is always the case. But this language of Jesus coming down and of, of he's telling them those who have dead will, will all be caught up, those who are dead first, and then uh, us, he says here. All of these are sort of steeped in images that have been around in the writings of Scripture for a long time. I think it's maybe helpful to think. I heard one or read one, one uh, author put it this way, this image of Jesus coming down. I kind of picture him like, well, which time zone is he going to come down in? And then what happens if you're in a different one? And then, you know, practically, logistically, how does this work, you know? But, but I do think some authors have been helpful for me here that this imagery, this language, is, it's, 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 a, it's a language of revelation. That in one moment, Jesus will see all of humanity. Uh, we will all be seen clearly by him and we him as well. It's, it's, it's an appearing, a revelation. One author described it as like, it's like the curtain being pulled back. And what has been hidden or felt distant because of grief and sin and brokenness, what has felt out of reach, the kingdom of God, as Jesus taught us to pray, that has been uh, in the realm of heaven, uh, out of reach, 
for many of us, why Jesus invites us to pray that it would come in this moment will be revealed, present, where it has been or felt distant. Again, I know it's not quite as like dramatic, perhaps, as some of the language wants us to think, but I do think it's a helpful image to think about what Paul is driving at in this moment. But not just Jesus coming down, this language of coming down. He also talks about uh, being caught up. And again, in the background here, which I think is helpful, are several images from the culture, right? Roman citizens in, in the colonies of that day would have, uh, at, a, at a visit from the empire, you know, the, the envoy of the emperor would have come and, and Roman citizens would have, would have left the realm of the city to greet them on their approach and then returned with them in a celebration to uh, their colony, the place they had come to visit. That perhaps this is in the background of this image Paul is trying to convey. It's not a escaping with Jesus to play harps on the clouds, I think is what I'm trying to say here. What he is saying is that God's kingdom is coming to earth. Jesus will be revealed and you will be there with him dead or alive, which, which I think is helpful here. The, 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 the point, I guess, the suggestion I want to make is that Paul's objective is not speculation. He's not trying to give us a detailed sort of speculative account of what the end of all things, uh, to quote, was it Frodo or Samwise Gamgee? I can't remember. What the end of all, here at the end of all things. Like he's not trying to give us a, a sort of detailed sort of timeline account of what that will look like. He's trying to give them hope. The goal is not speculation, but comfort. Have hope. Have hope even in the face and in the experience of death, of grief, of loss. His word to them in this moment is that whether alive or dead, the resurrection of Jesus has changed this moment for you. You can grieve, but grieve with hope. Your future is not some disembodied departure from reality. It is the return of God's kingdom, heaven on earth, as he taught us to pray. God working new creation and redeeming his world, Jesus with you and you with him. I, uh, it's been some time ago, but I, with my kids, we were reading through a series uh, called the Green Ember series, a bunch of warrior rabbits. It was great fun, right? You haven't... Think like Watership Down, but maybe a slightly less dark, but not by much, an apocalyptic, right? Like sword-wielding rabbits. It was a great time. But we have recently revisited that series. So the author, you know, as they do, uh, you know, he wrote like some prequels or some tangential stories. And we've stepped into one of those sort of stories of the lore of this world. And a line from that story has hung with me as I've sat with this passage from Thessalonians. Uh, he said something to the effect of waves of sadness are crashing always on shores of hope. And I think this is the Christian experience. It's not that we don't grieve. It's not that we don't feel the pain of death just as the world does. We know it as loss. We know it as a reflection of the brokenness of God's good creation. But it's that the waves of that sadness and grief are crashing always on shores of hope because of the resurrection of Jesus. His resurrection has changed our relationship to death. But not just death. That's the first paragraph. Whether alive or dead, you'll be with Jesus. That's the promise. It also changes our relationship to life. 
he, he continues in verses, chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, concerning the times and the seasons, brothers. You have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying around you, there is peace and security, but then sudden destruction will come. He'll go on to say that in this moment, God will deal definitively with evil and injustice in the world. Your experience of it as a person and the world's experience of it globally, God will judge. Evil demands a response, and in his wrath, he will put things right. And Paul says here that because of the resurrection of Jesus, our relationship to that hopeful truth and promise is peace, not, not fear. Right? He, he says in this passage, like the, the resurrection, we grieve with hope, but we live with peace, even when everything around you suggests insecurity and fear. We live alertly, you might say, but not fearfully, Paul is telling them. As Christians, what difference does the resurrection of Jesus make? We, we live wakeful, but it's not the wakefulness of fear and bad dreams. It's the wakefulness of anticipation and joy and security and preparedness. I, 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 you know, this is the language that has, again, much like the previous passage, and I, you know, well, we, if you want to talk to me later, I'm happy to chat, but this thief in the night imagery is, is uh, what's the word? I don't know, enticing, right? It's, it's, it's incredible. It creates a sense of uh, uh, hearing this kind of language. And, and, and again, I think sort of in terms of Christian spaces, the imagination has sort of uh, had a lot of fun with these images. A thief, pregnancy, sleep, day and night, drunkenness. I remember as a kid, uh, and I don't, maybe I'm not talking to all of you, but I was a younger person and there was a book came out and there have been all sorts of examples of this that have often had tragic results, but a book called out, so 88 Reasons Jesus Will Return in 1988, right? I know, right? And there are some much less, uh, or I don't know, much more manipulative examples of that that have led to pain and suffering, people wanting to speculate about dates, which is intriguing given how remarkably clear Jesus is about this precise move in the human heart. Don't speculate. The dates are not what are important to you. The timelines are not what is important. Again, Paul is not speculating. He's comforting. He's comforting with a word of hope. All around you is insecurity and fear, but because of the resurrection of Jesus, you have peace. You precisely don't have to live in fear because you won't be surprised as if by a thief. You know peace and security because of the work of Jesus. And he creates this incredible image, imaginative contrast with the world that is claiming peace and security and offering it in all kinds of ways. But the point that he's making is that these things are elusive apart from Jesus. Apart from his life, death, and resurrection, these things are elusive. His writing in this moment, if you want to go back, if you're so inclined to sort of explore these things, parallels beautifully down almost to image and verse uh, the movements that Jesus himself taught in Matthew 24 about this moment, preparing his listeners for how to be watchful and awake. You live in an age of darkness and sin and death, he says. And God will deal definitively with those things. 
because his goodness and holiness will put evil right. And you may be tempted to respond to that anticipation with fear and anxiety, but Paul's subjective, again, is not a speculation. He says, because of Jesus, be at peace. Don't be afraid. You're awake. You are awake. I heard one author describe it like uh, our experience of travel. The images here of like day and night and asleep and awake. You guys have ever experienced jet lag? Any significant sort of amount? The feeling like biologically or physiologically your body is in one or, you know, your, I don't know, mind, your circadian rhythm is in one space and you're like present in another. This is the feeling, um, I think, that helps us understand what Paul is striving at. You now, because of Jesus, are people of the day. You're awake and alive in a world full of night. In the middle of the world's night, the Holy Spirit of God, because of the work of Jesus, is inside of you and quickening you and waking you up to life. And his new world has broken in and in your experience of sadness and sleepiness and drunkenness and, and the deadliness of the world, right? It's experience of grief and loss. Resurrection has broken in there. And you're alive. You're awake. You're uh, alert. Long before the full arrival of dawn, you're living in one time zone, but because of Jesus, your experience of life has planted you in another. He uses several images that are helpful here. Again, the human heart's pull to speculate. We want to know. Give me a plan. Let me put it on my calendar, please. <laughs> I'd like to circle this date. Just kind of know. Give me some notice. And Paul's like, oh, all of that is to miss the point. I'm not writing to you to speculate about these things. I'm writing to comfort you. Regardless of what's going on in the world around you, even in your experience of grief, have hope. Don't be afraid. Know the peace of Jesus. He uses another image, that image of watching, right? This is, a, this is not a kind of anxious waiting and, and watching. It's an alertness that comes from true peace and security. I've been slowly working my way through a random book by a, a sports journalist from the UK by the name of Simon Barnes called How to Be a Bad Bird Watcher. We have a little bird feeder outside. I'm obsessive about it. Uh, and the squirrels are annoying, and I haven't come up with a nonviolent solution to that yet, but look out, right? Uh, but in his book about how to be a bad bird watcher, this is what he says. He says, you look out the window, you see a bird, enjoy it. Congratulations. You're a bad bird watcher. He says, I don't go bird watching. I am bird watching. It's a state of being, not an activity. It's just a matter of getting the habit, the habit of looking and listening. I think that's what Paul says here. It's the habit of Jesus's people in the world to be watchful. It's not a kind of, I think we hear this and we're like, oh, this is like an anxious sort of hiding behind the curtains in our rooms, peering back, withdrawn from the world. Oh God, is this the moment? Paul says, that's not what I'm talking about here. It's not a fearful withdrawal from the world. It's the peaceful, secure relationship of life with Jesus that plants you firmly in the world, but in the habit of looking. In the habit, as the language he will use in this passage, the habit of faith and love, and hope, which is how we started the letter. Bearing witness to a world grasping for security, deep in its brokenness, aching for peace, bearing witness to the world that these are things you can know in Jesus. 
And then he uses a last image here. You were clothed, he says. When he talks about these qualities of faith and love and hope, you are clothed. And then Mark Twain says, clothes make the man. Naked people have little to no influence in society, right? I think that's what Paul says here. You are clothed. Your influence in the world, your relationship to all the spaces you live, the places in your life where you experience or bump into grief, the places in your neighborhood and work where you where you uh, live and taste and feel the insecurity and the fear of brokenness. Paul says you go into those places fully clothed in the faith, love, and hope. Jesus. And that's true down to the nitty-gritty individual spaces of your life. It's as true there as it is for the global headlines and the unrest and discomfort and pain and suffering we see in the world. Paul says, in all of those spheres, if you have come to know the resurrection life of Jesus, don't be afraid. Rest in his peace. Have hope. The point he's making here is, again, not speculation, but certainty. Your hope is in Jesus, which brings me to the sort of last observation I'll make from this passage, that the promise of his resurrection, his life, death, and resurrection, what it means for life or death in our experience of the world, what what sort of sustains all of that is the promise that we will be with Jesus. And nothing, not even death, will change that. He says it explicitly in each paragraph about both of these things. In verse 17 of chapter 4, we will always be with the Lord. Always. And then again in verse 10 of chapter 5, so whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him in the world or out of it, alive or Uh, The promise is the same. It's the same promise he gave his disciples as he sent them into the world, right? The very same promise that, that, that would shape their life. I will be with you always, even till the end. The same promise sustains us even in death. I will be with you. I think for obvious reasons, for me anyway, this passage has been a source of encouragement and hope for me. When I think about the moments in my life when, like the psalmist, all I've been able, all I've been able to muster up is the prayer. When I think of you, God, I moan. Where are you in my experience of grief or pain or suffering? I hear the promise in this moment from Paul. Nothing will separate me from the nearness of Jesus. His life and death and and resurrection have conquered all of these spaces in my life and not even death will keep me from him. So Paul says, what do we do? What do we do with this truth? Encourage each other. Encourage each other. Be encouraged and be an encourager. Right, he ends each of the paragraphs the same way. Therefore, encourage each other. Which raises the question, how do we do that? What, what does that look like? What, what does that look like for you day in and day out? I'll offer a couple of suggestions. I think one, I think the rhythm of church is an encouragement. Uh, works as an encouragement. The rhythms and routine of worshiping 
together. You heard, you've heard it said here uh, by voices here that, that the, 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 the routine, the activity of hearing each other sing and pray and read scripture, perhaps in moments when to voice those things yourself feels too hard to do is a word of encouragement to the darker, broken places of your life. The author Tish, I think it's uh, Tish Harrison Warren, um, in her uh, Anglican priest, in her work, Prayer in the Night, for those who watch or work or weep, talks about the prayers of the church. Uh, maybe they're uh, the prayers that have been written and preserved in the history of church. Maybe it's the liturgy. Maybe it's hearing the prayers of other in the church. She talks about moments of her own darkness and brokenness when, when the strength to give voice to those things was out of reach. The the prayers, hearing, holding on to, simply reading and repeating what she didn't have the strength to utter herself, an encouragement that the life and resurrection of Jesus speaks even there. Maybe for you, it's in the Life Together group. You think you're just kind of chatting about life and maybe you're praying with one another, but in that moment, you're bringing the hope of the resurrection into all the spaces in which you live. Maybe like we've experienced over the last couple of weeks, it's just the beauty of showing up, not letting the fear of I don't know what to say or I don't know what to do, but to be present, like Romans says, to weep with those who weep and to rejoice with those who rejoice, to do that in a way that, that doesn't sort of dismiss grief, but says I recognize the, the, the difficulty, the pain, the grief of this moment, and yet out of the hope of Jesus, I am here with I'm going to leave you with one final image that I hope I don't regret. I'm going to take you back to the hospital. So one other feature of the uh, time there, I'm not only bad at, at uh, elevators, I am apparently also bad at bathroom doors, all right? So uh, one particular feature of this hospital is they're all automatic, right? The little square, got two buttons, one opens, and one, uh, I guess it locks it, I don't know. I was there enough, I should know that by now, but two buttons, right? So my first experience, I went in, I pushed the door to open it, right, it's kind of the slow, and I walk into the restroom and I'm like, what do I, what do, I do now, right? I can't, I'm open to the lobby or the hallway. I, and the first time I like grabbed the door to like, okay, okay, I'm, you're, you're open, I'm in, come on, back. Didn't work, you know, had to wait for it. So, all right, this is how it works, so I pushed the close button. So the location of the restroom we used was sort of right off this like, this like two multiple surgery waiting rooms, this sort of main corridor. I mean, it was used by all sorts of folks. And the, I remember I went in, one of them, I opened the door and I'm like, I knew how it worked at this point, but didn't change the awkward reality of what was this experience. The door opened and I'm just standing there waiting. Like people are like making eye contact with people, walking down the main hallway. Like, yep, this, I'm in the restroom and uh, you know, let me just give me a minute and I'll close the door. It's a crass illustration. <laughs> I'll grant that. But I, I do wonder if it's not an accurate picture, maybe of your experience of faith. The resurrection, the hope of Jesus. You feel like you're kind of stuck between spaces. Death, perhaps, and grief have encroached on your life. Suffering, maybe. Darkness, insecurity. I don't know what that has been for you. And you're like, I know these things to be true. I want to believe these things to be true, but I'm in this weird in-between space. My experience of this reality doesn't always line up. Paul doesn't come to you in this moment and say, hey, let me help you speculate about the details. He comes to you 
And he says, because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, you don't have to be afraid. You can have hope. You don't have to be afraid, and you can have hope. You can have hope and live at peace because Jesus is with you, and not even death will change that. So he says, let this fill your grief with hope and your life with peace and security. This, he says, is the good news of the gospel and it is for you. We guys stand with me. I'm going to lead us in prayer and then Andrew and the team are going to lead us in worship. One final song before we go that will pull us into the story of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. But as we do, I want to invite you to pray with me. And in this moment of prayer, perhaps you feel that tension in your own life in unique, maybe painful ways. I just want to encourage you as we pray to just own the awkwardness. Bring it in honesty to this moment. Maybe you open your hands in front of you as a way of admission. Jesus, this is where I'm at. The hope of the gospel meet you here. Jesus, I pray this morning that where we are uncertain about you, would you give us faith? Give us faith in the resurrection and the life of Jesus. Faith in your resurrection and life. Jesus, where we perhaps are overcome or uh, impinged by grief, May your resurrection life fill us with hope, the hope of your presence with us now and at the end of all things. Jesus, where we are lost in the insecurities and fears of the world around us, the world within us, we pray that your resurrection life would fill us and Christians the world over with the peace of your presence with us, both now and at the end of all things. And while we are inclined, Jesus, to withdraw from the world, may the reality of your resurrection fill us with your love that nothing, not even death, can separate us from you. Finally, Jesus, where we are afraid, would you send us into our community and into our world with the courage to encourage each other. At rest, oh God, in the peace and security that come from the truth that you have been risen. We ask all of this in your name. Amen. Will you sing? Thank you for listening to the Park City Church Podcast. To learn more about our church and or to find ways to get involved in our community, visit us at parkcitykc.com or follow us on social media at Park City KC.